I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on this week's episode. The Gators fall to five and seven on the season after a disappointing second half in the swamp against FSU. Uh, a couple coaches are out, Raymond and Spencer. Free agency. That's what I guess we'll call it. Well, transfer portal action. We got retention. We got all kinds of rumors flying around. Which Gators have already entered the name of the portal? And we'll try to stick to what's actually gone on and not uh, not all the rumors all over the place. And really, which positions we would like to see Florida focus on this coming portal season? Will, man, you went down the game. I think you were in the Tampa area, St. Pete for the in-laws. You went home to Gainesville for the game. I saw some great videos with you and Max at the game. Uh, what the hell, Max? That's really all I got to say. You've been talking about Max and Max's undefeated record. Max, he was looking pretty good the first half, the second half. Uh, well, we, so we, well, we were up 12 nothing Right after the safety, he looks over at me and he goes, I'm your good luck charm. <laughs> And I go, wait a minute. You've never seen this team before, buddy. Like you, you've watched them on TV, but you haven't seen this team live. It's, it's, it's going to get hairy here at some point in the future. And uh, sure enough, Florida decided to let Florida state back into it. And I think right after he said that was the double reverse um, intentional grounding play that sort of was a microcosm of the entire season there for Florida. And uh, you know, you're right. You know, it's funny because, I left the stadium disappointed that Florida had lost. I kind of knew what I was going to write as I was walking out. I mean, I'm usually trying to crystallize that sort of stuff. I heard the Seminole War chant was echoing through the concourses in the swamps, which was really aggravating. Um, thankfully, we were able to drown it out a little bit with the it's great to be a Florida Gator chant. Um, but I, I can't say that it was a bad time. I had so much fun with Max. He's so into it. So last year it was like, I, it was just a constant parade of buying him food enough to where he'd like sit down and watch the game a little bit. And then he claimed he had a good time, but I didn't actually know whether he did. And this year he was into it, like chomping <laughs> every play, high five in the frat boys next to him. He learned <laughs> some words he probably shouldn't know while he was there as well. But uh, it, it was a good time. And I'm, gl I'm glad we had that time because, you know, those 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 things make memories when they're eight, but I hope that that still turns into you know three hours that I can find with him when he's you know twenty, thirty, forty years old, and that'll be sort of one of our things to do. That's awesome. I I can remember watching football as a kid with my dad. Uh, speaking of uh, keeping your expectations in check, there pretty much any big play you'd be celebrating, and my dad be in the background, flag, flag. Whether or not there was a flag, he would just do that just to get the crowd. And what everybody'd freak out. People who didn't watch the games with them normally would would actually believe there was a flag. We started understanding uh, pretty quickly. Like, but but then that that, that like fifteen to twenty percent of the time, he, he was telling the truth. So it was it get a little confusing at times. He always checked. So you just check for the flag. It trained me just to check for the flag before celebrating. So uh, it's good to have dad uh, level those expectations sometimes, Will. So you, you, you did good. It's good experience for Max there. Well, and if nothing else, he's learning what it's like to lose a little bit. And that way, when the winning starts, it'll be sweeter as opposed Absolutely. to some of these people who took their eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds to those games in 96 or 2006 or 2008, and you never thought it was going to end, and then all of a sudden it ends, and now the kids are just living through the pain. So at least Max sort of gets the 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 losses to start with, and then when it turns into championships, he and I will be able to appreciate it. So that's the that's the hope, at least. Absolutely. Well, we'll have all offseason to dissect the pain. I'm thinking we'll do a little more detailed 2023 postmortem uh, re season re in review might be a friendlier term next week. 
But for this week, I, I'm calling this section. We'll say the Gators stayed within spitting distance of Florida State. Well, it was it was a close game. They really came out that first half. That first drive was extremely impressive for Max Brown. He had a drive. He had a throw on uh, third down to the sideline to Eugene Wilson that. Kirk Herbstreet was saying was one of the best throws he had seen all season. And, and it really was a real solid throw to Wilson. Well-timed right on the money uh, outside of the numbers, pretty solid stuff from Max Brown. We saw him escape a little bit early, uh, but you get to a third and three on that first drive at the FSU 21. They go for a pop pass to ETN where Damon George was pulling on the left side and Hayden Hansen was locking down, I believe on Jared first. So that makes things a little difficult in the backfield there. Uh, we saw Jared Ver first make another play on the night where he basically uh, took uh, George and used him as a, a stick to hit the quarterback with uh, later in the night. So that, that was pretty rough. Overall, the Gators did play well in the first half. They, they, they stuck with it. They really had some opportunities that they couldn't quite capitalize on. We saw that first drive, for example, ended up in a missed field goal from Trace Mack, who ended up two for four on the night. Max Brown ends the night nine of 16, 86 yards, no touchdowns, one interception. Johnson, 18 rushes for 107 yards and a TD. ETN, 10 rushes for 43 yards and with nine completions, not a whole lot to report in the receptions department there. Well, conservative game plan at times super aggressive at times you mentioned it in your article well in your post game yeah I, I, this is this is billy napier's calling card at this point is the only game i can remember him consistently sticking to a game plan where he didn't alternate between between aggressive and conservative is the tennessee game last year where he was conservative the entire way through i lauded him for it i thought it was great i thought he got gave the team a better chance to win this year, after a third and one QB sneak doesn't get the first down, he decides to kick a field goal after burning a timeout. The depending upon what model you use to predict what that did to the winning percentage for Florida, the the decision not to go for it on fourth and one from the opponent's 17 when you're up seven nothing and a six and a half point underdog somewhere between 3.5 and 3.8% less likely to win the game than if you'd gone for it. So based on cost, one play, just to be clear on that, based on, on that, that one play, play you, right. you swing the odds that far and it's easy to see why, right? I mean, they get the safety, they're up 12, nothing. Everybody's really excited, but one touchdown completely changes the complexion. Florida state's right back in it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you convert that fourth and one and most fourth and ones get converted and it wasn't even one yard, right? I mean, they QB sneak before, so they were closer than a yard. Most fourth and ones get converted. You turn that into a touchdown. You're up 14 nothing. If you get the same thing in terms of a safety, now you're up 16 nothing. That touchdown makes it 16-7. Maybe you, you're not feeling the pressure as bad when you come down after the big run for Montreal Johnson where you miss the field goal. Maybe he makes that field goal. Let's say you're up 19-7 going to the half. You feel a lot better about where you are considering how Tate Rodemaker was playing in this game. Um you know, but look, it still comes down to Florida had three explosive plays the entire night. They had a 24-yard pass to Hanson. That leads to a touchdown. They had the 52-yard run for Johnson after the Florida State touchdown. That turns into a missed field goal. Then they had a 21-yard run for Johnson, and that turned into a field goal. Florida State had four explosive plays. They had a pass to Jaheim Bell. They had a pass to Keon Coleman. They had, And then they had two runs for, for Trey Benson. 
the two runs for Benson came on the same touchdown drive. Mm -hmm. And then the pass to Bell and the pass to Coleman both resulted in touchdown drives. Florida State had five opportunities inside Florida's 40. They scored 24 points. Florida had five opportunities inside Florida State's 40. They scored 13 points on those on those drives. So that's the difference. The difference in the game is, is that Florida state put the ball in the end zone. Florida didn't put the ball in the end zone. And even the one where they did, they got a lot of help because the, uh, the, um, <laughs> the roughing the passer penalty was a little bit of a, Pretty generous. Uh, I don't know what that was, but that had that happened to Florida's defense, I might've hit the ceiling. Cause I just assumed watching it live that he must've gotten face masked. Like I just looked at it and was like, did he, did he grab him by the face mask? Like what happened? And no, he just apparently hit him too hard. I, I don't know what the, uh, what the call was there. So yeah, look, you, you know, my thoughts to... on that rule. That's yeah, uh, I know. I that's know. something that they really need to look at. There's a pretty unrealistic unrealistic standard for defensive football nowadays well, especially considering max brown is is relatively mobile and florida right. state's florida state no, knows that coming in but look the game was actually closer than the final score indicates florida state 224 yards average 3.9 yards per play um florida 232 yards average 3.9 yards per play the difference is is that florida made a bunch of penalties they had a they had the two pass interference penalties one i think was bogus but the one but the other one on uh, devin moore i thought was was appropriate um they had the spitting penalty obviously they had the penalty where they had great field position but then they blocked a guy too long out of bounds and got a personal foul call on that one they had the holding penalty that pushed back the field goal that eventually was missed so all of those penalties that you put in, look, when you're at home, you expect the opposition to make the mistakes. You expect the opposition to have the false starts that kill them on a third and two that turns it into a third and seven, those sorts of things. You know, Florida State made a couple of mistakes early on, but really it was a pretty clean game for the Seminoles. That's one of the reasons why they are where they, where they are. And Florida's game, just like it's been all year long, was really dirtied up by all the different mistakes. Yeah, we saw we saw them early on move the ball a little bit against that FSU defense. I, I think that defense is real solid on the other side there. But at the end of the day, field goals, even you know, Smack missed a couple field goals. There's some chatter about that. Field goals weren't gonna win this game. We had to put the ball in the end zone on a couple of those drives. That's why the fourth and one call that that you focus on your article, which check out Will's postgame article on readingreaction.com. If you haven't read it already, it's a great breakdown of the game. But you really needed to convert and, uh, and score six on those drives anyway. So that, that's well, I mean, something so, uh, where you weren't going to get a lot of opportunity uh, on the night. So the, the few opportunities you had to score, you really needed to punch it in as much as possible on that. It wasn't just the fourth and one. It was after the 52-yard run by Montreal Johnson. They have 14 seconds left and about 22, 23 yards to go. Mm -hmm. And they hand it off to Montreal Johnson again. He runs for like 14 yards and they get a holding penalty. But even if they get that and they call a timeout, like – are they really going to then throw like a fade into the end zone or something? Like it didn't feel like they were going to put the ball in, in Max Brown's hands to make a throw at that point. And if you're not, then you're just playing for field position and a field goal. Um, same thing. Uh, there, there was another drive later on where it was very similar, where it was like, Hey, uh, they, in fact, it was the drive where they scored the touchdown. They had first and goal from the two. And that time they decided to drop back to pass. So to me, the interesting part was, is they sort of alternated between being conservative and being, being aggressive. And it just seemed odd to me, like pick one, you know what I mean? Like if you think you need to be conservative and you're going to have to ground and pound them, then ground and pound them and really wear them out. Cause geez, Florida held the ball the entire first quarter 
And then, and then pretty much held the ball almost the entire first half until the spitting penalty really gave Florida State life. Um, again, though, that sort of goes back to the theme we've had all year, which is that Florida's team has been undisciplined in many, many, many different ways. And the spitting is just a further example of that, where you can't give the number four country, number four team in the country, even with their backup quarterback, you can't give that team just gift first downs. And mm-hmm. Florida gave them gift first downs multiple times. And, uh, you know, when you do that, you're going to lose a game. Now, Will, you were at the game, but the, on the replay when they showed the spitting, probably some of the most spit I've ever seen in my life. It was like a wall that came. Like, he went up, and it, like, just is this tire wall of spit. It was unbelievable. But, you know, it's just one of those things right now, too, where anytime a Florida player does something dumb on the field like that, you just – we're so – we're not far enough removed from the shoe toss, you know? <laughs> that was a big part of the conversation at the end of the Dan Mullen era where he talked about lack of discipline and Napier seems to run a good program in terms of guys seem to, to respect him off the field at least. But when you make a play like that, I thought you brought up a great example in your article about Kirby smart uh, during halftime of the Florida Georgia game, like where you got players who, who make an undisciplined mistake like that. They get heated in the moment and they choose to, lash out rather than think of the team first. And and we clearly haven't built that into the culture quite yet. Well, and Kirby calls him out on halftime on the halftime interview on national TV. Right. Like that, that's the thing is I don't, I, and I wrote, I wrote the word that they, what I wrote was that they respect him, that they play hard for him, but that they don't fear him. And I don't mean like fear him like an abusive father or something like that. I mean, they don't fear that there are going to be consequences when they do something stupid. We haven't even mentioned the targeting on the, on the quarterback run by Rodemaker that extends yeah. the final drive with for Hill. Florida State right. with, with Jadon Hill. Now, look, that's a tough one to hold up on. I get it. It's instinctual, all those sorts of things. But, one of the things that I wrote about coming in in the preview is that Rodemaker does not juke when he's a runner. He is not fast. He is not mobile. And so you don't need to go lead with your head. You can you can break down, wrap him up, and bring him to the ground. It's not like trying to tackle Jaden Daniels where you better come in like a rocket because you're going to have to hit him when he's not expecting it because he will juke you out of your shoes. That's not who Rodemaker is. And so, you know, to me, that – the the lack of discipline sort of cascades its whole way down the field. And if I'm a player who's playing with discipline, I'm mad that these other guys aren't being required to do it. And so that to me is a place where you're going to start to see some, like when you talk about somebody losing a team, like that's where losing a team comes from is when certain people have different rules than others and the rules aren't tied to winning, right? Urban Meyer talked about, you know, treat treats the stars like stars and it's crap like crap. And while that does create a split, it's also all in service of winning the game. And so what is it that Napier is going to put in place? Because the reality is, is if they just eliminated all the mistakes that they've made this year, like if they were a clean football team, they're probably eight and four. They're definitely seven and five. And all the close games that they played, um, I think a few of them wouldn't have been close. There were opportunities like that Arkansas game. If they eliminate the mistakes in that one, they win that one going away. Um, the Missouri game, if they don't have the mistakes they have in that one, they probably beat the Tigers. Um, this Florida State game, I mean, it was right there for them to take. And they got really fortunate that Jordan Travis wasn't playing and weren't able to take advantage of that either. And you know, you go back and look at each of these games that they've lost, and I can point out five or six 
things that just gave the opposition points. And in the Kentucky game, giving them points doesn't really matter. In the Georgia game, giving them points doesn't really matter. But in the Missouri game, in the Arkansas game, in this Florida State game, um, you know, all of a sudden those things start to really matter a lot. And and you know, this team isn't good enough to make those sorts of mistakes, and they keep making them. And eventually, that comes back to Napier. Yeah, that's what we've been saying. Not enough margin of error with these teams. Although I will say I was not upset with the Jadon Hill penalty because I'm just so desperate to see a defensive back on this team hit anything. That I was like, you know what? We got to take the good with the bad. It's progress here. Like a little bit of a little bit of contact from a defensive back. Uh, that's nice to see. Uh, will uh, the other play that was talked about a whole lot was the reverse. Uh, you had the lead. You had the momentum. You call a reverse that ends up in a. Uh, in, in an intentional grounding penalty where Brown's forced to throw it away because he's got about three defensive linemen in his face after a slow developing reverse is called. Look, it wasn't well executed. I, it, It's one of those things, though, with trick plays, if they work, the coach has guts. You know, scare money, don't make money. If they don't, you're crushing them for being conservative the whole game. It's one. It didn't work. I, I, it's kind of the way I assess that play. It just didn't work. It's not, it's not something that, Hey, in that moment you had good field position. That's not the moment to do it. Fine. That's fair critique, but I like the instinct to try to make a play in, in a big moment and swing the momentum overall. You can disagree with the play call all you want. I like the instinct on it though. I mean, I, I think it comes back to, to process and um, I, Napier went into this game thinking he was going to be conservative. And then in a few key spots in the game, I already mentioned they had first and goal from the two. They decided to drop back uh, Max Brown. He gets sacked. They convert that one into a touchdown, but only because of the penalty on Florida State. Um, and then they're ultra aggressive up 12 nothing when in with five minutes left when they had an opportunity to to at least pen Florida State deep, right? They could have pinned them back again. Rodemaker has done nothing in the first half. The Florida State offense has done nothing in the first half. So if you came in thinking we should be conservative, then I think you should be conservative. The other thing is it's easy to forget, but they ran that exact same play against South Carolina and got the exact same result, right? And Florida State's a better defense than South Carolina. And But it was the exact same thing. Graham Mertz had somebody in his face, threw it away, got an intentional grounding. And Florida comes back and wins that game, so nobody says anything, to your point. Nobody says anything about that disaster of a play. But they've called that play before, and it didn't work. And so that's one where we really got to examine why that play is not working, why the quarterback is getting drilled before he even has an opportunity to to catch the ball, and, and more importantly, why our defense isn't showing when they're running it in practice that that thing's going to be a disaster <laughs> because they've run it twice now and it's been an absolute catastrophe both times. Um, again, I, I think um, from a play calling perspective, something that complex and complicated, especially when you factor it, they only let Brown throw the ball three times in the third quarter. So, you know, they, they very clearly did not trust Max Brown to take this game and actually put it in his hands. And in fact, that was one of the points I made in the article is Florida state decided they were going to ride with Rodemaker, whether he made mistakes or not. And then he was able to make some plays and Florida never gave Brown the opportunity to do that, except on the first couple of drives, they never gave Brown the opportunity to do that. And then when, when they finally did, it was when it was obvious they had to drop back and throw 
and that's not his game. He's he's a mobile quarterback who who runs read options and and those sorts of things. They only ran one read option that I can really remember, at least one keeper. It was on a third down and I think like six, and he ran for 10 yards. And then they tried to run a QB draw on third down later in that drive, and he got completely sniffed out. But um, like in my mind, they did not utilize him in the way that they probably should have, given what they tried to do through the air with him, which was essentially nothing. And especially in that second half, they just sort of curled into a shell and said, we hope we can hold on to a 15 to 14 lead. And with this defense, that's that's a tough ask. And, um, you know, they so again, though, I go back to the entire game was a conservative game plan, except for a few little times. And I guess that's sort of what Napier was thinking. But I also wonder whether it's just the emotion of being a play caller and going, uh, last one didn't work. This one will. And sort of, you know, pushing through that is 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 really an area where having an offensive coordinator would help because it would divorce the decision of when to go for it and when to be aggressive from the guy who's actually calling the plays. Because mm. we've all experienced that, right? I mean, playing a game of Madden even. Like you call, you make a play call, it doesn't work out, and you're sitting there and it's, you know, it's whatever, it's third and five and you gain three yards and all of a sudden it's fourth and two and you got to decide what to do. Um, and if you're the play caller, you make choices different than if you're just watching somebody play off to the side. So I think in many ways, that's one of the benefits of having that, the play calling from the decision-making, not in one, not in one entity necessarily. Yeah, fourth and two run a little drag out of the slot. That tends to work pretty well uh, in men. That, that well, if it's is... Florida, they're going to run double slants. They always run double slants. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to see him push the ball downfield next year a little bit, man. This is a lot of, lot of side-to-side action this year. I'd like to see it push down the field a little bit next year, but we'll, we shall see. Will, we're going to see a different look on this Gators team next year, starting in the coaching staff. Uh, Sean Spencer of the defensive line and Corey Raymond on the defensive backfield. Uh, they are both out, fired by Billy Napier after the season here. I have to say I'm surprised on both of these in terms of my expectations from when they were hired. I, I think both of these coaches have a f- phenomenal resume. Spencer, uh, well-known from his time at Penn State. Uh, he's with the New York Giants before he came to Florida. And then Corey Raymond, of course, a legend out at LSU. But in terms of on-the-field results, you just didn't see the impact the last couple of years from any part of the defense. It's not just like it was just Spencer or Raymond. This defense has not clicked. It has not improved. It is pretty much a replay of what we've seen since 2020, essentially. Yeah. So um, there's one stat where Florida's defense is better from 2022 to 2023 that I can find that success rate. So they were, I think like 43% success rate allowed, which is really bad. And it went up to 38%. So that might suggest that things are going to trend in the, in a better direction next year, but they were so susceptible to giving up explosive plays this year that it didn't look good at all. They were 124th overall in yards per play allowed. That's after being 105th last year, but they were 118th in yards per rush allowed 126th in yards per per pass <laughs> they got they could get zero pressure on the quarterback they were 87th in sacks per game 1.8 sacks per game and when they didn't get a sack the secondary couldn't stop anybody either um you know again i, I just sort of go through the list of people so cam jackson's a transfer you got desmond watson jalen humphreys caleb banks chris mcclellan jamari Lyons, and will norman who in that group really took a step forward. You got Human Melan, then you got Boone who was hurt. You got Tyreek Sapp, and then you got Kelby Collins, Cameron James, 
and and Hill there as true freshman, who in there really like jumps out at you as an impact player? I know Human Meal was named to the All SEC team, but I mean, was he really a difference maker? I think uh, I think I've got questions there. And then if you look at the cornerback position, you got Jadarius Perkins, who didn't last the whole season. You got Hill, you got Marshall Kimber, then you got Devin Moore, Ethan Pouncey, you got um, Jakeem Jackson, uh, you got Denson, you got Dijon Johnson, and even at safety now, you've got Jamarcus Weston, who transferred or who moved from receiver to safety. Didn't really see him out on the field much. You got Miguel Mitchell, you got Kamari Wilson, looks like he's going to be transferring out. Dakota Mitchell, you got Aaron Gates, and you got Bryce Thor. And Jordan Castell, who played most of the year, tell me where we saw production, especially considering that Corey Raymond was promoted this offseason to be in charge of both corners and safeties. Where do we see production? So um, I will almost never say that I don't care about recruiting, but in this case, I don't care about recruiting. The defense was so bad given the talent level that Florida has. Like if Florida was like the same level of defense of Kentucky or South Carolina, or Tennessee, then I'd say, all right, maybe this is a, a rash decision. But this team was worse than Vanderbilt. And so the the irrespective of what kind of talent you bring in, there's been zero development at all at these positions where we're seeing anybody flash like outstanding level skill on a consistent basis. And so look, I think everybody's fair game at this point. And my guess is, you know, you think about like a I'm thinking about like an NFL team. If if they hire the coach first and then they hire a general manager, inevitably that general manager come in, comes in and there's tension between the coach and the general manager. And eventually, like usually a season and a half later, that head coach is gone. Now, typically when those hires happen, um, it's it's indicative of a dysfunctional, dysfunctional organization. But think about it, right? This entire staff was here. Patrick Tony leaves. Austin Armstrong comes in. Again, I think that's you got a defensive coordinator and he's going to be his job is absolutely on the line next year. Right. And so you got to let him pick the groceries and that old Bill Parcells ism. Right. He's got to have people he's comfortable with, people that are going to help him achieve his goals. And considering that there weren't I mean, there's nowhere where I can look statistically and say, oh, yeah, like better days are coming. It's just, you know. They're going to have to have coaches who make a difference and make the production of the guys who are already there be much better than it was this year. With Bateman staying on board with the linebackers, do you, you think that's because he absolutely knocked out of the park in recruiting? He's got, I think so. He's, I think he, so. I he, mean, he has about an A plus in recruiting. So those guys, if he's attached with those guys, maybe don't want to mess that up. I would say in the defensive backfield, I think we've done okay on the trail. I don't know if we've done. Corey Raymond, Corey Raymond level expectations where we're expecting to get some solid five-star candidates in that defensive backfield. The one you do get with Kamari Wilson didn't really pan out uh, in two seasons in Gainesville. However, it's only two seasons. We'll get to it in the transfer section, but man, the portal, the portal, it's, it's got its ups and downs. So uh, we'll just leave it at that for the, well, for the moment. So, without so, getting too much into it, but Spencer, so what else? Oh, sorry. So what what I'll say is that the linebacker position for Bateman, I thought Derek Wingo got better. I I don't think he's great, but I think he got better. I think Shamar James was playing at an all SEC level until he hurt his knee. I think Scooby Williams was much better than he was last year. I think they got kind of what you what you expect from a transfer in Taraja Mitchell out there. Manny Nunnery, okay, not great. Uh, but once they were thrust into starting roles, obviously Florida struggled. But 
you figure you've got James Williams nunnery and then the guys coming in, right? So you got miles Graham and, uh, and Adarius Hayes coming in there at the linebacker position and, uh, Charles as well coming at the linebacker position. You've got three studs coming in to supplement those, those guys who have already proven they can play at a reasonably high level. That linebacker room's pretty set. So to get rid of the coach at that point, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He's doing his job in terms of bringing in the talent and these guys are showing flashes of productivity. That doesn't mean that they're great. I mean, obviously, we saw Scooby struggle against LSU pretty mightily. At the same time, he was playing out of position, right? He's playing middle linebacker in in uh, in lieu of Shamar James because James was out hurt. And so I, I think, look, I, I don't think anybody should be necessarily safe on the defense, but out of all of them, if you told me linebackers, corners, or defensive line, who's more responsible for Florida's struggles, I would say defensive line and, and secondary are definitely the two spots. I think Spencer and Raymond both have enough of a track record as college coaches to say if you kept them around another couple of years, they would probably would be just fine. But for two seasons in a row like that out of your defense, you, you saw Tony was a surprise move last year. He took the job out of Arizona, whatever, however they want to frame it, whatever it was. Okay, he's in the NFL now. So Tony moves on after last year. Heads are going to roll if you have this type of performance in Gainesville somewhere. There's got there's probably some evaluations being done by Billy, but also by people that are cutting the paychecks and say we want to see some level of accountability for this we might not have seen it in the press conferences all the time like we wanted to but two big name coaches with high expectations get the axe early on for the Gators this offseason will do you expect any more changes on the staff I think so. I mean, I think you got the two offensive line coaches. There's been talk about an offensive coordinator. Obviously, special teams were a disaster this year. They're going to have to free up somebody to do that, whether they tra- whether they move somebody from a current role that they're in and give them those responsibilities globally. I, you know, I don't necessarily know, but that's probably a change that you're looking at. Um, you know, one thing I will say, and this is an interesting aspect of it, is that Spencer and Raymond are not Napier guys. Um, you know, guys like Jaluk and and some of the other guys on the staff, those are Napier guys. Napier's going to a season where he needs to win. And, uh, you know, in, in many ways, like, let's say he doesn't hire an offensive coordinator. I think we'll all be critical of it just because we feel like he needs to do more CEO type stuff. At the same time, I would actually kind of respect it because he'd say, look, I did this in the first two years because I believe in it. I'm going to do it in year three because I believe in it. And if I go down doing what I believe, I'm okay with that as opposed to changing just because there's a whole lot of noise in the system. Um, do I think that's going to happen? No, I think he's going to, I think he's going to bring in an offensive coordinator. One of the offensive line coaches is going to be gone, but, uh, um, or at least one of them is going to end up coaching special teams, but, uh, um, too bad Bobby yeah, Petrito's off the market. <laughs> well, Bobby Petrito back at Arkansas, amazing hire by the Razorbacks. I absolutely love it. Well, uh, you know, I mean, the the only one who's untouchable is Art Bryles when it comes to hiring somebody who's who's been through some sort of uh, some sort of scandal. Other than that, we always come back around to you know at the end of the day, wins and losses matter, and I think that's that's honestly the thing. Like, if if Florida's defense was average and Corey Raymond and Sean Spencer got let go, we'd be like, well what i mean you got to fix the the issues that you're seeing on the field obviously especially sort of the breakdowns from time to time but 
you know, it's it's not a terrible defense, and these guys have a track record. But it's been so bad and so atrocious for two straight years now. Two years, right. But I just look at it and I go, look, we wouldn't give Todd Grantham this level of grace. We didn't. We wouldn't give any other coach this coaches this level of grace. And the only reason Austin Armstrong isn't sitting there squarely in everybody's crosshairs is because – it was bad in 2022 when he wasn't there, and now it's bad in 2023 when he is. And so maybe he's not a difference maker, but he's certainly not the only one responsible. So, look, Florida's made a decision. They've let some guys go. Um, they have deemed that those guys are part of the reason that the defense has struggled. And so if the defense continues to struggle, it'll be very clear that that lies on Billy Napier and Austin Armstrong, not Corey Raymond and Sean Spencer. And, hey, hopefully those guys don't – I mean, I hope they go on and succeed, but I hope they don't go on and succeed next year and sort of prove the point that it was Napier and Armstrong. But that's going to be the experiment, right, is is was it – the the staff was it the staff and its coherence or cohesion or was it just you got a defensive coordinator who really isn't that good and we're going to eventually find that out a lot a lot of what you pointed out in our magazine with armstrong that came to fruition with his defense minus the actually get actual getting pressure on the quarterback is it just was it just not a great fit with some of the guys in his system this year i mean so I think that's part of it, but I think part of it is is that you know we we did last week. You had me do the 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 breakdowns of the film, the Willie's whiteboard whiteboard Willie whiteboard Willie you were calling it. And one of the things I pointed out is that the blitzes that he was sending were sort of through traffic. That there were a couple of times where linebackers fell on each other, which was a problem when they were blitzing, but that the blitzes just could not get home. And he was putting his secondary in compromising situations by doing that. And if there was any tension between him and Raymond, it was probably that it was that you're bringing all these exotic blitzes and you never get home. And so why are we doing this? I think the biggest criticism you could make of him is that Princely human Milan spent way too much time in coverage as opposed to just putting his hand in the ground and going. Um, there was a lot of trying those, you know, getting simulated pressures to try to overload and those sorts of things. But here's the problem is, you know, you think about the spread in 2005 when Urban Meyer bought it to Florida. It was new. People weren't sure whether it would whether it would work. Not everyone was running it, which meant you had to prepare for Florida every time, right? Florida is essentially just running Georgia's defense with worse personnel right now. And so if you're going to do that, if you're going to – if you're going to run that, it's nothing that's special. It's nothing that's innovative. They're not doing anything that no one else is doing. I mean, all the simulated pressures and all that sort of stuff. In fact, I think that was one of the things most people sort of pointed out when Armstrong started when his first sort of introductory press conference. He was talking about being multiple, what they're going to do out of different different fronts, three, four, four, three, you know, all sorts of different things. And I, I can't remember exactly what he said in the clip, but it was essentially this is what you would hear from Kirby Smart at Georgia. And honestly, that's what you hear from Nick Saban is, is these guys sort of came with with defenses that were designed to stop what was going on at the time. I think they've made some adjustments over time, and certainly Armstrong has been part of those adjustments as well, or at least has observed those adjustments. But you're not doing anything innovative, which means you need better players. You meet, you need superior players to, to get to where you need to go. Now, look, should Human Milan be getting to the quarterback more often? Yeah, I think so. Should should a guy like uh, you know should a guy like uh, Desmond Watson be holding up more in the center? Absolutely, I think he should. Um, Chris McClellan showed promise as a freshman. I didn't really see him flash this year as much as I saw him flash last year. And then you had Banks and Jackson coming in as transfers who were there, but you know were they really difference makers? Not really. Um, is that scheme? Is that player? 
Um, I tend to think it's more scheme. I think he gets a little bit more exotic than most others do. Um, sometimes like at Southern Mississippi, that's necessary. And when you're playing a team like Louisiana or you're playing a team like Appalachian state, um, you, um, even with a slight athletic disadvantage, if you overload one side or the other, you still may be able to slip by the sec. You got five-star tackles for all the big boys that you're playing and those guys can move. And so just because you overload one side or because you run stunts, I mean, there was a play, I think it was, it was either against Missouri or against Arkansas where they ran a stunt with Desmond Watson at tackle. And I'm like, yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> like you just, I mean, I get it. Sometimes you want to stunt your defensive tackle, but Desmond Watson isn't the guy you want Make to stunt. Desmond Watson take fewer steps. Uh, well, want to minimize the step count for the, for, again, for the big man. Uh, your job as a coach is to allow is to put your players in position to succeed. And I think in many cases you can make, you can make, um, you can make a case that over the last two years under Patrick, Tony and Austin Armstrong, that they have not necessarily done a great job of doing that. I think we thought after two or three games this year that things were improving. I thought he did a really nice job of adjusting against Tennessee playing much more zone than he normally does, but at least once or twice a game, I just kind of chuckle to myself and go, he can't help himself. Like there will be a play where they're, where they've got somebody pinned back and he'll go cover zero. And you're just like, why? Like, what was the point? I'll actually have to go back. I haven't thought about it. I'll have to go back and look at the Florida State game and see whether some of those big plays they got in the passing game were ones where he essentially set up, set up man-to-man and was really coming after Rodemaker or uh, or whether it was just the Rodemaker made a play. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I, look, I haven't been an Austin Armstrong fan from the start. Um, this year certainly has not has not improved that view anymore. I hope that he improves. Now, he did improve significantly at Southern Miss from year one to year two. They got a lot more pressure year two than they did year one. So hopefully that'll be the hope for Florida is that with more talent coming in in this 2024 class, transfers that they're going to bring in as well, and then you also factor in that these guys have been in the system for a full year and hopefully that there's full cohesion with the coaching staff that all that stuff will amount to they'll probably still give up a bunch of explosive plays. But if they're actually creating explosive plays, then maybe you can take that trade off and the defense takes a jump. We shall see. I, I know people talk about uh, Napier being on the hot seat going into next year. I still think that's a little premature. I think you need a little more time than three years. I, I'm tired of three-year cycles. Well, we have all offseason to get into that. But I'll tell you who is definitively on the hot seat next year is Austin Armstrong. There's got to be – significant improvement on that defense based on what we saw in 2023. Uh, All right, let's move on here. Transfer portal. Now it is Wednesday night at around 10, 15 PM right now while we're recording this. So this is, this is the information is accurate as of now. It'll probably be, you know, six people deeper next time you see this uh, in, in the next 24, 48 hours. But the official window for portal, the transfer portal is December 4th through January 2nd, 2024, early signing day, December 20th through 22nd, and national signing day is February 7th. So some key dates during the offseason. The portal activity is getting kicked off here. Guys announcing their intentions to jump in. Tight end Jason Odom, safety Kamar, Kamari Wilson, defense lineman Will Norman, QB Max Brown, and wide receiver Caleb Douglas will I would say Norman and uh, Douglas are a bit surprising. The rest, yeah, I could see. I, I could see they're a little stacked at those positions in terms of uh, depth and, and their 
whether how they factor into the field. So I Wilson just didn't see much playing time on a pretty weak defense. You would think he'd be able to break into that. Norman, just a freshman, man. Stick around more in a year. And Jason Odom has some experience, but we saw some of those younger tight ends. I'll tell you what. One Gator that I thought played fantastic down the stretch, that second half of the year in particular, Hayden Hansen had quite a run. As much as I like boarding him, I, is Hansen – that's tight end one, right, on this team? Well, I mean, they play with two, so it doesn't really matter who's tight end one. Um, certainly made some nice plays out there, but uh, boarding him has, has some flashes too. I think it's a little bit of recency bias to call him tight end one. I think one of them's going to have to uh, have to earn it. So you sent me something earlier this earlier today, actually, from Nick Delatore. He had talked about from on three. He had talked about that uh, that um, that Florida needed the attrition. And when you start looking at their roster, you realize why right away. So they only have six guys who don't have any eligibility left. So Ricky Pearsall, Dante Sanders, Keon Zipper, um, you got Lindell Hudson, you got Taraja Mitchell, and you got Jadarius Perkins. Now, Zipper could probably apply for an extra year given the injury that he had this year, but he did walk during senior day. So, you know, they introduced everybody for senior day, and Zipper was one of the guys who walked out there. The interesting thing to me, and I was sitting there like going, wait a minute, these guys still have eligibility, is Jonathan Odom also walked for senior day, Mazuka the offensive guard, he walked. Kingsley Egwakin, who's just a redshirt junior, he walked. Jalen Humphreys, Jadon Hill, Jalen Kimber, and Jamarcus Weston all walked out for senior day, got their flowers, the, the picture, or gave their flowers to their mothers, had the pictures, Billy Napier, all that sort of stuff. So that gives you an idea of some people who might be, uh, might not be long, long for Gainesville, given that those guys walk. Now, look, they could all make the decision to come back to Florida. Um, and certainly for some of those guys, maybe we hope that they do, but that gives you an idea of, there's only a few seniors in the class. They're going to have to push out the guys who were non-productive because I had them, um, you know, there's some, there's some walk-ons they give scholarships, but from a commitment standpoint, I had them at 83 scholarships. You lose three, you're down to 77, which means you've only got what, eight scholarships to give and you got 19 guys in your recruiting class right now, which means you're going to have to lose another 20 guys probably from the roster in order to make room for the freshmen you're bringing in. So a guy like Will Norman, look, I good recruit, not great recruit. Um, obviously a blue chip, but not a can't miss guy. You look at him and go, all right, maybe the work ethic, maybe the productivity, maybe, you know, just the fit within the scheme wasn't there. And they sort of you know, asked him to leave. Same thing with Kamari Wilson. Didn't play very much this year. Didn't really get out Ooh, on the field. IMG what guys, do you do with Will, that? Something we've talked a lot about getting an IMG, two IMG yeah. guys. Well, I mean, again, I think I think people are going to try to read a lot into who leaves in the transfer report. I think we got to see where the dust settles, right? Who comes in? So Grayson McCall for uh, Char or uh, Charlotte, right? Coastal um, Carolina. Sure. Coastal Carolina um, just entered the transfer portal as well. McCall was one of those names last year where you were like, "Ooh, are we going to be able to get him?" And sort of thought maybe they might bring him and Mertz in, and then have that be a battle. So look, if you if you end up if you ended up with Grayson McCall in the quarterback room, and you've got a guy like Cam Carroll coming back at running back from an injury and you hold on to the other guys, then all of a sudden you've got a better team than than you than you thought you might have anyway. I mean, look, who on the team, if they lost in the transfer portal, would you be like heartbroken to see? I mean, I've got three. I got Trevor Etienne, I've got Trey Wilson, and I've got Shamar James. 
Yeah. Those are the three that I look at and go, if you lose those, one of those three guys, now you got to start talking about it. Now there's been rumors about ETN and we'll see where that ends up, but those are the three guys. Those are the difference makers. Those are the guys who flashed and have been consistently productive. Like ETN has put up what 800 yards, both his freshman and sophomore year. Trey Wilson caught like 60 balls this year. And then you got Shamar James, who obviously we saw what happened when he went out in terms of Florida's defense going downhill, but also, Thought he played very, very well, at least for the first for the first three, four, first three or four games. I thought he played pretty well. I mean, other than that, is there anybody that you look at and say, based on what we've seen at Florida, if they left, you'd be heartbroken? Like, I think guys like Jakeem Jackson, I think guys like Dijon Johnson, I think guys like Sharif Denson, I think guys like Thornton and Castell, like we hope they stay because we've invested in them from a freshman year perspective. Now let's get the, the, the spoils from that. But there's nobody other than those three that I look at and go, absolutely. You have to hold on to that guy. He's a, he's a guy who makes your team better. Let's make sure he stays here. Yeah. I, I would like to see college football do something about the annual free agency for every single player on the roster. There needs to be some ability with NIL to lock people up a little bit for at least a couple of years. Like I like the idea that kids are allowed to transfer now that players are free to explore that opportunity or take advantage of, you know, what they can get in the market. I think Matt rule was talking about quarterbacks today. He says the quarterback on the transfer market goes for anywhere from one to $2 million good quarterback on the transfer market. Like you have a chance to go do that. Go do it. Sam, yeah, Hart- I mean, so- Sam Hartman at Notre Dame. Last week, I believe they played Wake Forest on senior day up at Notre Dame. Well, Sam Hartman started for four years at Wake Forest. Dave Clawson was making fun of the video Notre Dame's putting out saying, thank you, Sam. We love you. He's like, they don't love you. You went there took the deal. We love you. You played for us for four years. Like, that's something that is a weird thing in college football that you just got to get used to for now. But I do think that there's going to be – some ability to ensure that you're not having to play defense on this roster retention every single cycle with every single player. Well, I, yeah, I it's just I, out of control right now. Well, so look, I hear what you're saying at the same time. Like if, if I hire in a chemist to my organization, my goal is to make that chemist more valuable in the marketplace. Now that also means that I need to increase that chemist salary over time in order to make sure that they stay where they are. And giving them direction and giving them um, coaching to help that person become better at what they do and more valuable to my company in particular is is a critical component of getting the most out of them. So a guy like Sam Hartman spends four years at Wake Forest and Clawson looks at it and go, well, we invested in him and we didn't get the full return on the back end. But you didn't really invest in him. You invested in making him a better player, but you clearly didn't invest in him enough to keep him from going to Notre Dame. Like Notre Dame decided that that it was worth we, going out you- there and 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 giving him a better deal, whether that's money, whether that's I've always wanted to play for the Irish, whether that's I'm going to be on national TV all the time, whether it's that I'm going to grow that beard and everybody's going to swoon over me. You know, I, I don't know <laughs> what the I don't know what the what the package was that they put together. But look, Wake Forest, step up. You got a quarterback that you built into. You made him more valuable. You certainly did. But he worked hard for that too. And so then you sit there and go, no, just stay here and be loyal and we're going to be chintzy. Like, so I that's a Wake that, Forest that problem. That should not be a Florida problem, though. And, and like, I get that Florida, you don't have the – the program's not where you want it to be right now. But you didn't co- – like, I think a lot of these guys have been sold on being the guys to bring it back. And I think with this class coming in, especially with Lagway coming in, 
Like there is that vision for the future right now. Now, look, we can get into whether or not I I'm not here to sell anybody on anything. Some some of the, the fan base is pretty divided on Billy right now, on the future in general right now. I just I'm at a point. I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan. I bring that up once in a while on the show, don't I? I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan. One of the for things sure. that killed me with the Jags was this, this you live in the same cycle for years. It was hire the coach, listen to them complain about the previous coach for two to three years while they were marched their way to a slow death in year three or year four, redo it again. And it's like every and then the coach can oh well, we need time to get our system in. We need to get our guys. And you do this cycle over and over again. Whereas you look at a fan base like in Pittsburgh, they might be tired as uh, as hell of Mike Tomlin. You know, he, he's been excellent over the course of his career. I think he's got a Hall of Fame resume as a head coach in the NFL. Well, it does get stale. I could see it getting stale over time. It's unusual. Pittsburgh's an unusual place because they just don't fire coaches there. But look at the result. The guy has the Steelers in the hunt constantly. They might not be elite right now, they, but I think there's reasons outside of Mike Tomlin why they're not elite. But they just have that consistency in Pittsburgh that, look, unless you hit the home run on the Urban Meyer coming in, Steve Spurrier was such a unique story that, you know, home, yeah, that, that's your kid, that's your guy that won the Heisman. That, that story is probably never happening again. All right, that was such a once-in-a-lifetime deal with Steve Spurrier. Urban Meyer, right place, right time, it worked out. That story has not worked since. So at what point do you dig in and invest a little bit? You might not be happy with all the play calling. You might not be happy with the direction. But I think, like, you look at these these guys, Will, that come in for a year and dip out, it's, just, it's the same type of cycle as the coaching. Because, okay, so now, Will, Norman, you're going to go where next year? Are you going to go to Georgia? Are you going to go to Texas A&M? Are you going to go to a better school than Florida? Kamari Wilson, where are you starting? Are you starting next year somewhere? I don't know. We'll see. But it tends to – these guys tend to hop in the portal, and you don't necessarily hear of most of them again. Well, I think I think you're missing something here, which is that you're, you're assuming these guys are hopping in the portal because they want to leave Florida, not because Florida wants them to leave. And Florida needs guys to leave in order to bring in the guys that they've recruited. And if they think they need help at certain positions in the transfer portal, that means more guys are going to have to leave. So again, I go back to, if you gave me George's roster and said, who are the guys you don't want to leave? I'd give you like a list of 12 or 13 guys that I'd be like, based on the production at Georgia, these are the guys you want to protect, right? Like you think of like an expansion draft where if we were, if we had an expansion college football team, who would you want to put on the protected list? Georgia would struggle to figure out which guys they're putting on. They'd have to make some decisions. Like, you know, do I want to protect this junior or do I want to protect the freshman who's got the potential? Cause I've seen what he can do in practice and all that sort of stuff. I look at the Florida team. I see three dudes. And that fundamentally is a problem, which means if you've got guys who aren't bought in, if you guys guys who aren't teachable, if you got guys who have injuries, if you've got guys who are injured all the time and just can't play, they haven't been able to stay on the field. If you've got guys who don't put in the work when it comes to study and film, if you've got whatever the, whatever the, you know, if you've got guys who can't make weight, like, and, and can't do what the strength and conditioning coach is asking them to do. Whatever that is, if you've got those guys, Billy Napier specifically went young. 
But one of the things that happened when he went young is it meant there was no turnover at the senior level. Senior level. He's only got six of them. He's got six guys coming off scholarship at the senior at the senior at the senior point. So if everybody comes back, he can't bring in anybody. So this is like the idea that the transfer portal is this player thing where the players are taking advantage of an ability to move around. I will agree that there are some players like the Hartman example you gave. Quite honestly, like Ricky Pierce saw coming from Arizona. State to Florida, who take advantage of the fact that there's an open starting position at Florida and they can leave a power five conference, a power five place where they're at and go someplace else. I'll I'll stipulate to that. But what I'll say is it it seems like a little bit like if nothing else, it's a little bit unfair to the players because they're being asked to leave instead of being developed. And, you know, because Florida had so much in that junior and senior class that's left through the transfer portal before, it means there's only one place to cut. And so you're going to see guys who came in in last year's class who decided to go someplace else. And I don't know whether it's the player's decision to do that or whether the player has essentially been told you're going to be buried third on the depth chart. You should probably seek an opportunity someplace else. And the transfer portal gives them an opportunity to do that. And that is a good point. I'm just looking at the names that are on here outside of Odom and I'm thinking these guys, I, 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 I would assume with these names here that, they're probably looking for opportunities elsewhere, but I, cause I don't see us walking up to Caleb Douglas. Do we just have such a wealth of wide receivers that we're telling Caleb Douglas, he's not going to see the field next year. He, he had a couple nice plays here and there when he was on the field, didn't play much this season, got injured. Was it the Kentucky game to get hurt in? Yeah. Got it was injured. a deep pass against Kentucky. Yeah. I got injured pretty early in the season, but the little bit we saw of him, we saw flashes of him in 22 as well. That That's not a guy that I would think you'd get told Max Brown. Hey, are you ever, probably going to be the starter at Florida. Probably not, but you play baseball. You can play backup quarterback. You can be a solid backup quarterback with a little bit of mobility. I don't know if that guy's being told to hop in the portal. So yeah, there's some, I, I am making, I'm jumping to some conclusions there, but, and I, I do think Wilson and Norman were just such, they were high enough profile recruits where they probably looked at it and go, I didn't get play time here. I well, can definitely so, see that, but I, Wilson I, in particular was such a high profile recruit for him not to see the field hardly at all in this defense the last two seasons, there had to be some stuff where something wasn't clicking behind the scenes on that. So I, well, this I, is I why I say we. This is why I elsewhere for that opportunity. Well, this is why I say we got to wait and see where it all, where it all, um, where it all lands when we get done with the fall. Or, or when we, yeah, when we get done with this fall transfer portal cycle, because really nothing of significance happened in the spring very much. Um, but let's say that Florida brought in Grayson McCall from Coastal Carolina. Would you take that trade, Grayson McCall for Max Brown? I don't think he's coming here to be a. Well, I don't think so either. But this yeah. is what I'm saying, right? Is that you're you're making a judgment on Max Brown deciding to go into the transfer portal? And look. I love Max Brown. I wanted to see him get an opportunity. I think he's going to go someplace to like a lower level, uh, you know, not an F. Yeah, I, G5. I think a G5. a G5 school, and I think he's going to play pretty well. Yeah. But if you have an opportunity to bring in somebody better, especially considering that we're all going to judge Billy Napier on winning games next year, and he he says, I need a backup to Mertz, or I need somebody better than Mertz to get this thing over the hump. Well, and he brings somebody like that in. Well, now – Max Brown leaving makes sense. Now, if Max Brown just leaves and we've got Mertz and we've got DJ Lagway and that's it, well, then maybe it's like, all right, we should have kept Brown because we needed that sort of depth. Right. What could we have done to do that? So Brown leaves. We'll see where it shakes out. I'm not ready to criticize Brown. I'm not ready to criticize Napier. 
right now today. It's going to be where does it end up when all the musical chairs are finished? And quite honestly, there's enough tampering going on that Florida should have known that Max Brown was going to enter the transfer portal before he did. And Florida should know who's available at positions of need before anybody enters the transfer portal. This idea that you enter your name into the transfer portal and that's when you make contact with these teams is just laughable. The teams in college football who are actually working the transfer portal significantly are tampering like crazy, and hopefully Florida's one of them. Good example today. I, I saw someone someone tweeted this. Out. I was I think I think it was Josh Pate had the tweet uh but riley leonard the quarterback from duke answer enters his name in the transfer portal and pate tweeted 3 p.m riley leonard enters enters name in the transfer portal 301 p.m the entire internet the entire college football media knows it's notre dame and they go buddy elliott's got his instagram page he's followed all these notre dame guys so yeah to your point these deals are are likely getting done there's all kinds of tampering but I think it's the wild west still in terms of the rules with the transfer stuff. It's a little frustrating though, from a college football perspective, because you're used to seeing like a guy like a Kamari Wilson, people are going to look at him. Oh, he didn't work out. The guy's been on campus for two years in, in college football in the past. If that guy starts by the time he's a sophomore or junior, you get three, two to three years out of him as a starter. That's fantastic. But it's immediate expectations nowadays and if you don't get them you're in the portal you see it with freshmen all over the country it's not a florida thing it's a college football thing right now well and if you're kamari wilson you think you're a, a excellent defensive player you look at what happened on the florida defense this year and wonder why you're not in the game now maybe there are legitimate reasons for him not to be in the game and maybe that's something that um you know, that Napier and, and Armstrong and Tony are going to need to be criticized for in the future. If he goes someplace else and shows out, certainly the transfer portal, like you mentioned, you had a great article or a great, um, great piece in the magazine, the preseason magazine we put out talking about all the transfers Florida's brought in. And it's been a really mixed bag and really kind of a, you know, I would say a net not, negative. Not in so terms mixed. Of- not so mixed. <laughs> well, yeah. It's been bad, right? They, they have not yeah. gotten a lot of production out of the transfer portal. So, you know, if you ask me who I want, out of the transfer portal. Like, you know, I want people who are power five proven, like guys who are starters at the power five level because Florida needs starters. Florida doesn't need a backup linebacker behind, behind Scooby Williams. They need a guy who can come in and play starting linebacker. Florida doesn't need a backup defensive end behind Justice Boone. They need a defensive end who can come in and start. They don't need a backup corner. They need a guy who can come in and make Jason Marshall um, compete for his job. So um, to me, it's not even really a positional thing when it comes to who you're bringing in. It's do these guys have experience and a track record? So, you know, you look, Riley Leonard's going to go to new, going to go to Notre Dame. Okay. That's great. Notre Dame knows exactly what they're getting when Riley Leonard goes in there. They're not guessing based on profiles from high school or anything like that. Same thing when USC got Caleb Williams to come from Oklahoma, he played at Oklahoma. They knew what they got. Plus, plus, uh, you know, the head coach there, Lincoln Riley knew him because he was at Oklahoma and then strafed him. But, um, you know, to me, those are the ones that make a lot of sense. If you're bringing in a guy who doesn't have a track record, then it requires a lot of coaching and you're not necessarily always sure of what you're getting. 
You can make the argument at quarterback. Maybe that doesn't matter so much. Jaden Daniels' profile wasn't great at Arizona State, but that was a guy who was starting at a Power 5 level. Same thing with Graham Mertz. It's a guy who started at a Power 5 school. Um, you know, I think I kind of underestimated that coming into the year, to be honest with you. I think the the track record of Mertz made me underestimate that. I still don't think he played great. I think he hit his ceiling, but I think that ceiling was limited. But still, he played better than I expected him to. And so, uh, you know, I'll eat a little bit of crow on there and say, hey, maybe targeting guys who have been starters elsewhere is is a critical part. Now, look, Mizuko was a starter at Baylor. And he wasn't necessarily lights out there at, at, at right guard, but he did play a bunch. He did. He was a starter, right, for Florida, beat out the other guys who were in there for that position. Um, so to me, that's the thing is let's go get starters. And I don't care what position they're at. And honestly, no position at Florida should be safe after a five and seven season. You know, you talked about the defensive coaches and somebody being to blame there. But, you know, some of that blame has to land on the players. And you go five and seven at the University of Florida, that's just unacceptable. And you have a defense that's as bad as this one is, it's unacceptable. So bring in guys who can be starters, who have already been starters. And if you got to guarantee them a starting spot and that means you demote somebody else, hey, that's just the way it is because you don't get to go five and seven and then crow about how you've how you've already locked down your job. Like everybody should be fighting for their job at this point. Yeah, I don't think the transfer portal should be about numbers. I think it should be about a few high-end acquisitions. You see, that's pretty much the way Georgia, Bama, Ohio State, that's pretty much the way those guys run it. Uh, of course, they got the rosters to back that up. But you go in, you strategically say, you know what, we're a little light at receiver. Let's go get ourselves a, a experienced starter at receiver that can play right away. You know, Georgia goes in, they go get Dominic Lovick, Ra Ra Thomas, a couple of those guys. I know they haven't necessarily been the premier receivers at Georgia this year, but they've been they're they're there for as solid contributors at times. So it's like I, I don't even know that you use the portal to close holes. I don't think Florida's good enough to figure out let's let's close holes. Florida just needs good players. So if there's well, a guy who's Cameron at a- Jackson, for example, this year, I, I know the defensive line wasn't great at times, but he flashed at times. He announced he's coming back, by the way. But like that, that was a solid pickup through the portal this year. Sure. And if you have the opportunity to bring in a guy who's going to compete with Cam Jackson at defensive tackle and he's been a starter at a power five school, I think you do it. Like, I, I don't think that I don't think anybody's job should be safe after you've gone five and seven, especially on the defensive side of the ball, okay. considering how bad that's been. And so, you know, if you're Georgia, you go, we're light at receiver. Let's bring in a guy who can help us there. But there's a reason for that, right? Is you've got Carson Beck and you've got Vandergriff and you've got, you know, five-star guys lined up all over the place. And the expectation is those guys are going to be ready and able to step in if anybody gets hurt or if anybody has discipline problems or or if anybody decides to transfer out. The issue with Florida is that they they clearly don't have that right now, which means just find guys who can play football. Get those guys out there and find a way to get them on the field. And if you get a if if Human Milan decides to stay and somebody else who plays that defensive end position is available and is an awesome player, go get them. And having two guys who can rush the passer, really, like, that's that's a luxury that Florida kind of could use um, as opposed to sitting there going, well, we already have somebody at this position. We wouldn't want to make them mad. Let's make sure we bring, you know, we let's not bring them in. Screw that, man. You got to bring in good football players. I don't care where they are. Just good power five proven football players. Bring those guys in. Let them compete. Right. Yeah, I'm looking. So I, I just was wanted to put numbers to it there. Thomas and... Love it for Georgia, a 72 combined receptions on this season. So neither one of them's lights out, but pretty solid contribution 
on the receiving side for the Georgia Bulldogs through the transfer portal there. So whereas you look at go through our transfer class last year, I think the attempt was there. You saw like look at the offensive line. We'll we'll end on this question, Will. What positions do you want to see addressed in the portal this year? You look at the offensive line last year. I thought they did a great job at least attempting it. I think George was a guy you looked at and you went, okay, didn't work out at Bama. He's got potential there. Goodwin came in from Kentucky, left the team before the season for personal reasons. And then Mizuka, who had the injury, missed most of the offseason, and that had to have played some level uh, into his play this year. had to have some level of impact on his play this year because he came back during fall camp and – you know, I know they're not going to talk about that, but just using common sense, you don't usually it takes a little time to recover from things. So he might not have been at full strength this year. So the offensive line didn't really get addressed that well because George ends up coming in. Hey, George is a guy that definitely I think we can all agree after if you get thrown in. I know Jared Verse is probably gonna be a top ten pick in the in the draft in April. But if you get thrown into your own quarterback, I think tackle might not be the position for you. Maybe uh, maybe guard, maybe we talk about something else. But you don't have the footwork for tackle if you're getting thrown into your quarterback. So I would call that a bust at the offensive line position in the portal last year. I think they looked for depth. I think they were looking for a lot of pieces last year. Some okay performances in the portal. Overall, though, you need – a few high impact starters this year in the portal. And that should be the pride. I'd rather, I'd rather get three to five guys in the, in the portal class. And they're all high quality guys that we're going to get something out of in 2024 versus, you know, stacking a, a nice class of solid prospects, 10 to 12 guys deep. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially because I want them to bring in 27 signees in this particular recruiting class, yeah. including Jordan Seaton. Um, hopefully he comes in five-star offensive tackle that maybe you're playing right away. Right. And, and uh, um, I already said it. They, it's not about positions at this point. It's about competition. It's about bringing in guys who have won games at power five level at the power five level who have played solid if not great at a power five level. And if that means you got to throw a few bucks around, that means you got to throw a few bucks around, but you know, and to sit there and go, well, we need help at guard or we need help at center or we need help at defensive end. You help everywhere. You went five. and seven. You were 60th overall in, I think it's 60th overall in yards per play. Sixty um, first overall in uh, in points per game, fifty seventh in yards per play on offense. So we're not talking about this offense that was just like this juggernaut this year. It was average, maybe in the top third of all of the. You know, there's 133 teams in in FBS, so fifty seventh is kind of in that top third. But they weren't awesome. They're 124th in defense. So they were in the bottom <laughs> the bottom five percent on the defense side of the ball. They need players. And they need guys who are proven and they need guys who can come out and start right away. And, you know, so bringing a guy like Taraja Mitchell, who was a starter at Ohio state, but then sat out a year looked like a good opportunity to do that sort of thing. Obviously Mitchell doesn't play till the end of the year. Mizuka from Baylor, same thing, but I don't think you want to look back at, and George was a backup at, at Alabama, but did have some time there. I don't think you want to necessarily look at that and go, well, we want to avoid that profile because those, you know, and go potential because the guys who are out there on the field didn't didn't perform. I think it really comes down to, you know, that you're going to have to target guys that you think fit within your system, but also guys who have significant skill and to hell with what position they're at. Just bring in good players. 
Yeah, I mean, you look at a key transfer this year, Keon Coleman out of Florida State, that wide receiver, they probably paid some good money to get him down to Tallahassee. So a couple impact guys like that. And uh, maybe this Gators roster takes a little bit of a different shape. The good news with where we're at, Will, and I know there's not a lot of good news sitting at five and seven. I think uh, – I think we I think we nailed it in the preseason magazine where we uh had the Georgia we had a half bulldog half terminator face there where it's kind of some dark days right now you know this is really we're kind of going back to for old time Gator fans this is going back into like the early 80s when Herschel Walker's running all over us year after year Georgia's in contention for national titles Florida's figuring itself out it's tough times it's tough times uh I think that this team can turn it around quickly in particular, this school, Florida, whether it's Napier, whether it's someone else, whether it's anybody, a school like Florida can flip it around in a year or two. I think you look at Florida state story this year, and I don't like to give a lot of praise to Florida state, but who had this two years ago with Mike Norvell, who had the undefeated season, regular season. And I know there's a lot of talk on whether or not they'll make the playoff, which I think if they win on Saturday, Louisville, you have to put them in the playoff and undefeated. I don't even think that's remotely a question. That'd be very stupid if they got left out as an undefeated team. But you look at the job he did where he could flip that around to an undefeated season that quick. Florida State doesn't play the type of schedule that we play year in and year out, but that's still a pretty amazing accomplishment, Will. And it just shows that there are those types of schools that you can flip it around pretty quick. It's not great right now in Florida, but you can flip it quick. So what's the difference between Norvell two years ago and Norvell a year ago? Two years ago and a year ago? Yep. Uh, a few wins under his belt. <laughs> See, and I look at it and I go, the difference is Jordan Travis. Jordan Travis developed went, by Norvell. Well, yeah, but Jordan Travis went from – a average quarterback to a great quarterback from 2021 to 2022 and was playing at about the same level in 2023, maybe a little bit less. And so not recruited by Norvell, but developed by Norvell. And that's going to be the question for Florida state is can they find the next Jordan Travis? Now it's really hard to find that guy. And especially when you haven't recruited at a really high level, it's hard to find that guy. And I suspect that Florida state's going to come back to the pack quite a bit. Um, even in the ACC with Jordan Travis gone. We saw what happened when Rotomaker was in the other day. Um, if Rotomaker's a starter next year, like, look, he'll, he'll develop. He'll be okay. He'll be better than he was in that game against Florida. But um, the reality is, is that, is that quarterback makes a huge difference in most cases when teams don't have elite talent and when they're playing teams with similar talent. So Florida State has had an advantage at quarterback in just about every game they played this year, except the LSU game. And, uh, and, and so, you know, look, they won that game, and I think that says something about where the program is, especially on defense. At the same time, we've seen what LSU's defense can do, and it's pretty abysmal. And so, um, you know, obviously that, uh, you know, at this point, not really a surprise that Florida State was able to go up and down the field on them. Um, they, so they do have a high-level five, four-star. He might even be a five-star kid now, uh, Luke Croman hook who's right up there with Lagway and all the ratings coming in the class of well, 2020. So, uh, yeah. so if we look at the ACC historically, um, when Florida State was really dominating, you had Jameis Winston at quarterback. Yeah, They switched to DeAndre Francois, take a step back, Jimbo Fisher gets pushed out. Now you've got Jordan Travis. They're winning consistently, or they're winning, right? I don't want to say consistently. They're winning. 
And we'll see what happens when Jordan Travis leaves. Do they have enough talent with a quarterback who just has average play? We saw this at Clemson where, where Dabo Swinney hit on Taj Boyd, Deshaun Watson, and Trevor Lawrence pretty much one right after another. Had the one year with Kelly Bryant where they had a lights-out defense and then had to switch from him to Lawrence just because they didn't think they were going to be able to win a championship without elite quarterback play, and they proven right, obviously, given the way Lawrence played in the national championship game against Alabama. Um, but Clemson now. Missed on DJ Ui Agalele, missed on Cade Klubnik, it looks like, and all of a sudden Clemson is a normal team. Now, that doesn't mean Clemson's like 2-10, and 10, and I don't think Norvell's going to go back to that, but I think he's very quarterback dependent, and that'll be the question is can he continue to build at the quarterback position or is it going to fall off? So when you ask me is it a fast build or can Florida turn around quickly, it's what I've said now for probably two years. It's all about DJ Lagway. DJ Lagway can turn this program around like that. If he comes in and he's an elite, elite signal caller right from the start and uh, DJ Lagway can completely sink the Billy Napier era. If he comes in and he plays like Jordan Travis did, you know, three years ago. And that's unfortunate for him because it means that there's going to be an awful lot of pressure on him. Everybody's going to want to see him next year. And, you know, if the defense doesn't improve by leaps and bounds, Graham Mertz isn't going to be enough to get the wins. And eventually they're going to have to bring Lagway in and throw him in. And maybe he's ready. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But, um, but to me, that's the thing is if you're looking at anything, that's going to turn around. If Florida scores 50 points a game this year, they win eight or nine games. Right. I mean, if, if they can be a truly elite offense and chuck the ball all over the place and have a quarterback back there, who's making unbelievable decisions and Lagway can run too. So all of a sudden you can run a lot of the stuff that Napier ran with, Anthony Richardson, but hopefully with a guy who's more consistent through the air, this can be a really dangerous offense. Again, though, that has to happen, right? Like he has to hit on that guy. If Napier hits on DJ Lagway, he's going to be here for a really long time because irrespective of what's around Lagway, the games are going to be fun to watch. Floor's going to score a bunch of points and everybody's going to sit there. Exactly what we said in 2020 with, with Mullen, where it was an eight and four season, but man, that was a lot of fun watching the ball go up and down the field on the Florida offensive side of the ball. Now it would have been much better if the defense obviously could have held its weight, but, uh, but even a bad defense with a lagway who's chucking the ball over the place, I think will get Napier quite a bit of time. So to me, that's the turnaround. The turnaround is the quarterback position you need. If you're not going to have elite units elsewhere, like, look, Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State to some extent can get away with the Jake Cokers of the world and compete for national championship. We just saw Michigan and Ohio State. The difference in that game is quarterback, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, McCarthy and played great. McCarthy plays great. And the Ohio State quarterback has sort of struggled all year long for an Ohio State quarterback. And and the talent level is close enough that Ohio State has now three straight to Michigan. Um, you know, Georgia and Alabama, same thing. Like Stetson Bennett played really well. But the fact that they went with Bennett to start with was that sort of acknowledgement that we've got these elite guys out on the field. We just need someone who's not going to screw it up. Let's bring in the guy with experience. And then it turned out that Bennett was more than just that game manager that you sort of saw from the start those last couple of years. And like I said, Alabama, I mean, geez, they've had guys there who have absolutely been game managers. And then they got in the run where they had Jalen Hurts and they had Tua and then they had Mac Jones and, Bryce. you know, Bryce Young and now um, uh, Milrow comes in and everybody's mm -hmm. like, how could he? But even with that, they're 11 and one in the SEC championship game with Milrow. And actually, when you look at his stats for the overall year, Milrow's pretty good. Um, had some, had some rough sledding to start with, but has turned into a pretty good player. But again, still, I think like, most Tide fans only care about a 31 yard completion right now. Uh, that's and absolutely true. But, but my but my point is is that is that you don't need an elite quarterback if you're one of those three programs. 
every other program has to be like Clemson. They have to find their Taj Boyd. They have to find their Deshaun Watson. They have to find their Trevor Lawrence. Now, by the time Clemson found Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence, they had already built up with Taj Boyd. And you can remember Clemsoning was still a thing when Taj Boyd was a quarterback there. They lost that game to West Virginia where they gave up like 75 points with, I think, Taj Boyd as the quarterback. And that may be what's around the corner. But a 10-4 and four season right now, losing a bowl game, or 10-3 and three season, losing a bowl game in, in an embarrassing fashion, would be a welcome change for Florida right now. And uh, and so certainly if Lagway could deliver that, then that's that's where the hope lies. It's all Texas A&M's coming into the swamp September 14th. You got, of course, we're opening the season with Miami. I think Sanford is sandwiched in between there. Miami on the August 31st, Sanford on September 7th, and then – so three straight home games at least to open the season next year. A&M comes in. A&M hires Mike Elko from Duke, the former Texas A&M defensive coordinator, who spent four of Jimbo's six years in College Station. And that's the guy that's going to fix it. Well, I, I like Elko a lot. I think he was awesome at Duke. But you paid $75 million to get rid of a guy, to hire a guy that had been there for four of the six seasons that the guy who you fired was there for. So what – Explain that one to me. Make that one make sense. He's going to modernize the offense or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But that's a lot of money to bring in a guy who was on staff with Jimbo Fisher. I'd be making Steve Adazio for offensive coordinator jokes here at Florida if that was sort of the the approach that they took. I want to first see that we're not going to hire him for offensive coordinator before I make any jokes. So (laughs) let's let's make sure we're not going to hire him first, and then we'll start making those jokes. Wow. Look, I mean, college football is ridiculous at this point in terms of the amount of money that flies around for the coaches. It's one of the reasons why I don't get bent out of shape when it comes to NIL and these guys transferring. I mean, look, every single kid at Texas A&M should have the opportunity and the right to go wherever he wants to go at this point. And honestly, probably even hold on to the money that they were given um, or promised under under NIL auspices there at Texas A&M. It's a completely different coach. And, you know, you sit there and you look at it, you, go, God, this guy's got a $95 million contract. He'll be here for the all four years on there, no doubt. And people get antsy and fire them. And the the reality is there's there's three elite teams in terms of recruiting, and everybody else is sort of fighting for table scraps. Now, Napier has gotten Florida into that conversation. He's not quite there yet, but he's getting them into that conversation. And so, you know, to me, the recruiting is still the thing that makes me hold on. If he was recruiting like Dan Mullen right now, I'd tell you, ugh. Like there's not really any hope, but, but the guys they've got in the fold, if they can get them to commit for early signing day, if they can bring in a guy like Seton, if they can maybe flip a guy like Jeremiah Smith from Ohio state, I don't know how realistic that is, but if you can bring in that sort of talent, then all of a sudden I'm looking at it going, the way to judge Napier is not whether the team looks good on the field. It's whether that 2025 class looks the same as the 2024 one. And then you're talking about having a level of talent where the on-field stuff doesn't matter because you're winning games by 25 points as opposed to having to get every single thing right. And uh, look, I mean, Florida State wasn't without air in this game. And even when we played Georgia, Georgia wasn't without air, but they're so much better than Florida that Florida has to be without air. And that's really, I think, where the program needs to get eventually. But in terms of short-term turnaround, it's it's all about lagway, man. Always has been. I think we need to start analyzing recruiting classes the same way NFL draft guys analyze NFL drafts. They they say give it three years, give it three years, let it simmer, let it cook. Then you analyze what actually happened in that draft. That's what recruiting is turning into. Twenty twenty six. Let me know how this twenty four class turned out because it, it's going to look a lot different. If you go back and look at the twenty one, twenty two, and the are the are the 
2018 through 2021 classes. Not a lot, not a lot of those guys are sitting on this roster today. So it's it's just a different world of college football today. So it, I know the the comment saying is like, yeah, don't get excited about recruits until they sign on the dotted line. It might have to be don't get excited until they get to their junior year. Is that what we're going to have to start saying? Well, like they're going to either come in because I still think as freshmen, you're not making. You look at a guy like Eugene Wilson. Would you say that guy has an NFL future just seeing his talent level? Sure. Yeah, that guy looks like a clear-cut dude that's going to be playing in the NFL one day. He's not the type of player today that he will be in two seasons. Well, so, I mean, look, I I think – Even the most talented freshman take a minute to make a real impact on the game that you need to if you want to be winning at a high level. And so that's what, like, we need a bunch of guys like Wilson. We need Wilson accelerating and playing like that experienced player on the field. And that that takes time. And with NIL, with people jumping around, man, it's tough to keep that stuff together. It shouldn't be at Florida, though. At Florida, you should be able to keep – your dudes at Florida. I, I feel bad for more. We talked about the Wake Forest of the world. But those look, man. If, if if Florida was eighteen and six over the last two years, I tell you, Napier has all sorts of time. People need to be quiet. But Florida is eleven and thirteen, and at the end of the day, this is a results oriented business and a hope business. Like we've talked about that a lot. That recruiting is about hope, and you better be selling some hope if you're going eleven and thirteen. And, you know, I, I, I said this on, uh, I, I was on, uh, Allie Pitt's, uh, podcast yesterday. And one of the things I said is my enduring memory from that Florida state game is going to be that I'm on the concourse here in the war chant with my son on the way out of the building. And that is an enormous withdrawal that Billy Napier just took from a goodwill perspective with his fan base, with the boosters and probably with his players as well. That stadium was full of Florida state put folks. Florida fans sold a lot of their tickets because they didn't want to come and see their team lose. And, you know, we can, we can criticize the fans for giving up their tickets that way. I think that's a justifiable opinion as well. Um, At the same time, like that's the image as your stadium at the end of the game got overtaken by the Seminoles. They came out and, and dug up a piece of sod off your field. Your team's 11 and 13 in two years. And if you look at the record against SEC teams, they're what, six and 10. And if you look at the record against power five teams, it's even worse. Stuff has to start turning around. Like I'm, I'm all for giving people time. I think it makes sense. I think we can look at rosters and say, um, you know, Oh yeah, it should be better than it is all that sort of stuff. But this defense has been the worst defense in the SEC for two straight years. Yep. There's no excuse for it. And so if you want to tell me that that people need time and that and that Trey Wilson needs time to be who he's going to be, yeah, I'll agree with you on that. But how about the juniors and the seniors who are who are on the team who 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 have struggled in those roles? Like shouldn't they be developing? Like you 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 mentioned Norvell all, developed. All six of them? Well, you developed Jordan Travis. You're telling me you're sitting here going, "Well, Norvell developed Jordan Travis. He developed him. That's 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 why they they are where they are. We got to give him credit for that." Well, then don't we have to give the same demerit to the to the staff that comes in and can't develop or hasn't developed the guys who are older or allowed all these guys to leave? So guys like Tyron Hopper, Antoine Antoine Powell Ryland. Um, uh, Powell Ryland's going to be the freaking defensive player of the year in the ACC for Virginia Tech. Um, Chatfield has a ton of sacks up with Oregon State. Like There are a bunch of guys who've left the program who have gone on to excel elsewhere. The guys who've stayed in the program have not. I think at some point you got to look and say, I at least need to be concerned. Like I'm not going to sit there and just yeah. be like, you have to be patient. You have to give this guy to 11-13 sucks. And irrespective of what of the reasons, it sucks. 
And the fans are right to say it sucks. And I'm not going to criticize somebody who says I have real concerns because I have them too. No, I, I think there's multiple areas to be concerned about. Absolutely. There's a difference between being concerned and looking at like right now, if we, if you fired Billy Napier right now, who are you hiring? Will? I mean, it's an unfair question from it's the stamp. It's an, it's a, it's a, bullshit question though because people just say fire a guy and it's like okay we should go get coach number one okay he's not coming coach number two he's not coming coach number three that's how you end up with jim mcelwain that's how you end up with jim mcelwain so it's you know what my answer is my answer is urban like that's who you go get again go get urban people will say urban meyer is that happening probably not so oh that'd be such an awesome homecoming it's it's nice to say something. It's nice to say something. It's another thing for it to happen. Well, you, so you here, at, it's it, you look at Napier's profile, and he's the type of guy that you would give the time to, that you would invest in. I know the results haven't been there. Look, I've been super disappointed with the discipline on the field. I I, I have been super disappointed with the special teams, the little parts of the game we do not do well, and that is a sign of good coaching. And like I think Napier. In, in his staff have to do much better in those areas. And I think there's real reason for concern and I'm not even trying to sell anyone on it, but what I'm saying is we've seen this cycle of higher fire, higher fire, three, four years. When do we give a guy like just four or five and we just, just sit like we, I hate so, this too. So, I so, hate going five and seven will, but you have to at some point do something different. Right. So no, no, no. So, so let me ask you, and cause this is a, this is a thought experiment. Um, do you believe that coaches excel um that that winning coaches win right off the bat like that that year two things turn around for guys who win championships um is, is that is that inherent or is it that we fire people so quickly that we never get to actually see that quote unquote next Saban because we've just been so quick on the trigger that you never find him so give me uh, like, a, like a Steve Sarkeesian. How that man lost to Kansas at home in year two, I believe. Was that year yeah. two or year one? Well, so, year, but, but he went, but he went something like year one. He, lost he went something Kansas. like five and seven, then he went eight and five, and now he's what, 11 and one? Yeah. yeah. So eight There's and five is a hell of a lot better than five and seven in year two. That's true. That's true. And he, he recruited very well since the it's also a second in. power five job. And he lost the first one, not because of performance, but because of alcoholism. Third so power um, five job, right? Yeah, USC, third, that, right. Well, where was like, USC Washington, Washington. He started at Washington. That's he right. That's the, right. He was that's the right. OC. Third. Him and uh, Kiffin were like the duo that's under right. Pete Carroll at USC. Yeah. So, I, Sark, Sark though got off to a rough start at Texas for sure. And, and it wasn't two seasons. It was one, like you said, but off top, Mike Norvell, perfect example. Billy Napier, right now, if you go to this point in the timeline of the Mike Norvell era, it wasn't for sure that Norvell was going to get a, a run at his money there. I thought Napier, though, you look at those Louisiana teams, and this is the part I've been disappointed with. They were well coached teams out of Louisiana that played some good football, good clean football. I know you can point to some different things. I think I saw a thing on Twitter today where a guy was. Uh, Reaming Napier because he took a safety that made it a three-point game late in the game against Appalachian State uh, for Louisiana. I didn't understand that call at all either. Okay, fine. So you could go back and find calls that you don't like from Napier. You can do that with any coach. But I thought we were going to have a cleaner, more organized team. 
on the field. I thought that we would see uh, like less penalties. I thought we'd see clean special teams. I was totally expecting that out of Napier. I've been disappointed by that so far. And at this point, one of the things you look at, we talk about the recruiting, the recruiting, the recruiting. That was something a few years ago, most of our fans, I was in this club too, where it's like, hey, yeah, Kirby's great at recruiting and he's great at not starting his five-star quarterbacks. That's awesome. And Dan Mullen can start a four-star kid and make him look like a five-star kid. So you can give him a play like that. Hey, if you're just a recruiter and not the game day guy, Kirby's prove, proven that he could build so much talent that you can be solid at both. I think Kirby has done an excellent job. But you look at a guy right now like Mario Cristobal down in Miami. Everyone knows he's a hell of a recruiter. I think they just flipped the five-star defensive lineman that's been recruited, uh, that's been committed to Ohio State since July. And out of Chicago, I think. And, and now he's come down to Miami. Flipped the kid uh, earlier tonight on Wednesday night here. Mario, though, the, like the kneel with Georgia Tech this year, the, the lack of kneeling, I should say, at the end of the game, game where you could have just run the clock out, but you choose to run the football. The criticism on Mario is that great recruiter, not a great game day coach. Like, is Billy Napier a less caffeinated Mario Cristobal right now? Is that something we're going to have to wrestle with going into the offseason here? But I, I, I guess I'm just giving it a taste of the type of show we'll do. We'll, we'll break down the 2023 season on the next episode. And, uh, We'll, we'll look into these questions a little deeper, but the, these are the questions I'm walking away with from the 2023 seasons. Well, I mean, I guess. So after the 2022 season, I said, and, and really one of the things I said after the 2022 recruiting class was that there were a lot of questions about Napier. And I think after two seasons, we've got quite a few answers. Um, some of those answers are good, especially on the recruiting front. Some of those answers are not good in terms of what we're seeing on the field. Um, and the, the, the thought experiment that I posed to you is something we'll eventually talk about. I'm sure probably next week, which is that, you know, are you better off cycling coaches every three years? If it gives you an opportunity to potentially hit on the elite guy, if you believe there's only a limited number of elite guys out there, or are you better off sitting there and building for six, seven, eight, nine years until that elite guy presents himself that you knows it can't miss, and then you go get him? Now, the right. question there is, who's the last guy who was an elite guy who got brought in as a can't-miss guy? Um, I would say it's Urban going to Ohio State. I would say Kirby is about as close, but he was a defensive coordinator at Alabama. People wondered whether that was that was a hindrance, right? You think about Urban coming from Utah. People wondered whether that was like that was not like a can't miss hire. Now, obviously, he was in demand, but that wasn't a can't miss hire. In fact, I would say the last quote unquote can't miss hire that was made was Jimbo, Texas A and M where they sniped him away from Florida state and said, you know, things have soured in, 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 in Tallahassee, but that he'll be able to turn us around. We'll give him all the money that he wants and we'll go from there. And it turns out that that can't miss guy isn't always a can't miss guy. Now they're on to Elko. Maybe Elko ends up being better than, than, than Jimbo, but and the idea that Jimbo you... six years out of A&M, by the way. Yeah. They so, him, you know, they, they were very patient with Jimbo and it was the same story year in and year out. That's plenty of time. I guess what, Will, what I worry about, my concern is this. My concern is that the noise is going to get ratcheted to a point. I feel like we're one click away from being Tennessee. We're one click away from being Tennessee where you're just cycling through, guys. And all of a sudden, like, do you feel like Josh Heupel is a guy that's going to lead Tennessee to a national championship? 
Or is he just like, he's got a great offense. He's a good coach. He's doing better than any coach has done there in a decade and a half. And he's going to keep his job for a little bit because of that, but they'll get tired of that act eventually. It's not, it's not a long-term proposition at Tennessee because you keep cycling through guys, eventually find the guy you want to invest in a little bit and stick with it. And that, and that's, well, they gave, they gave Butch Jones a few years on that theory. I'm sure there's plenty of people right now who disagree with me, but. They gave Butch Jones a few years there at Tennessee, and and I think Tennessee has some inherent disadvantages compared to Florida. I think Phil Fulmer was sort of the second fiddle to Steve Spurrier most of the time he was there. Now, obviously, Fulmer wins a national title, um, but uh, and, and that's the other thing is, is I think you know <laughs> that Tennessee fans might tell you that there's value in being patient, but Fulmer was also winning SEC titles. It wasn't like he was just, I mean, he was the Elmer Fudd to Spurrier, but at the same time, like they were actually winning and winning significantly. They were top 10 team. They just couldn't get over that Florida hump. If Florida was a top 10 team and it's like, we just can't get over the hump. I wouldn't be sitting there going, well, people are right to be questioning Billy Napier. Florida didn't in a freaking bowl game. And, you know, we just watched that Swamp Kings documentary where Urban Meyer said he was about to, like, jump off a jump off a cliff when he lost three SEC games his first year at Florida. Three SEC games, not three games. And then all of a sudden wins a national title in year two. Um, the reality is you look back at the SEC history, and Bill Sykes written about this a lot. You look, back the, look at the SEC history, and that jump in wins from year one to year two for all the guys who've won SEC championships is significant. We just saw a regression in terms of win-loss for Billy Napier. I think there's plenty of reason to be concerned. And yeah. you know, to, to sit here and pretend like there isn't, I think is, is disingenuous for me. Now, what I will say is, is that I think – I think the uh, there are a lot of things in college football that are different than have been historical, and I'm willing to entertain the fact that there will be that there are opportunities for outliers from those sorts of things in the past. Um, but he's gonna have to prove it, right? I mean, he's gonna have to prove it, and he's gonna have to prove it um, essentially with Lagway. Like Lagway's gonna have to go out there and win some games, and and win and and throw some missiles around and we're going to have to see it. And uh, maybe we see that and Napier's here for a really long time. I hope that's the case, but you know, to sit here and go, I'm certain that he's going to be the guy and he's going to lead us forward. I don't think I can say that. I don't think anyone can say that. I don't think anybody can say they're certain. And I'm, I sound like I'm defending Napier himself. Hey, Napier's got to prove it. This is university of Florida. He's got to go out there and prove it. I, I absolutely believe that you put another, if the defense looks like it did in 2024, like it did this, really since 2020 i keep saying that because that's true but if the defense makes no improvement in 2024 which i keep you and i've been joking behind the scenes that like we got to stop saying it can't get worse because it definitely can it definitely can get worse it's there's no floor on this it seems like but it needs to get better if you if you put on i feel like we've been stuck in groundhog day with with our football team since that shoe was thrown it's like curse of the shoe and until we get out of this cycle, until we see some real improvement, especially on the defensive side of the ball, if you come out next year, you got a scrappy defense. Lagway looks like the dude. It's promising. Maybe the record's not where you want it 100%, but there's some real promise there. I do think that 2025 is definitely happening. I think that 2024, though, you have to really show some marketed improvement by the end of the season. Yeah. I think so. Look, I, 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 we got a lot of time to talk about this. Florida and Billy Napier have given us a lot of time to talk about this. So, uh, um, all I want to say to wrap things up is, uh, go Louisville. Yeah, knock them out, man. Let's ruin, let's ruin that. Let's ruin that season. I'll be go cards, go cards. All right. 
got carried away at the end there, but you know, there's there's a lot to talk about. Well, we're just heading into off-season mode. Uh, for those of you that stuck around, we appreciate your time. For everybody else, we'll be here week in and week out every off-season like we always are for World Miles. I'm Nick Knudsen. Have a great week, everybody, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction. Or you can go to patreon.com slash read and reaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.